0: Now, looking uh, this time at verses 9 to 11 of Revelation 1, if you have your Bibles open in front of you, follow along as I read this section. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Now that last verse of course verse 11 enumerates or lists the uh, seven Churches of Asia Minor, uh, these letters in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, which are crucial to the understanding not only the, of those the Christian fellowships in those congregations, but also of their position with respect to the entire apocalyptic revelation. Now, the groundbreaking work on the seven churches in Asia Minor was done by Sir William Ramsey, the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century, published in his book, Letters to the Seven Churches. It was an historical and archaeological compilation of the background to the story of each of the cities of the seven churches of Asia Minor, and is a foundational work for the discussion of these churches and of, the chap- of, the, of chapters 2 and 3 of the book. All those who have... Uh, come after Ramsey, Colin Hemer, for instance, the late Colin Hemer, and other commentators who have followed up on his own research, whether they have been appreciative or critical or have actually improved upon it, they are all dependent upon Sir William Ramsey. You have in your hand, in your handout, a copy of the map from Ramsey's Seven Letters to the Seven Churches, it's as clear a map as I could get in my own personal possession, uh, and also allows me to tell you a little bit about Ramsey's famous work and his groundbreaking and uh, just laborious uh, going back and forth over these sites for many, many years um, and putting all of that into a book which is now, which is still famous but not, needs to be supplemented by subsequent uh, discoveries and comments. Now, if you have the map before you, I want you to notice that uh, irregular circle of dotted black lines, which is over on the center left of the map around Lydia, and you'll notice that it begins on the west coast of Asia Minor with Ephesus, It goes north to Smyrna and further north to its northern pinnacle, Pergamon, and then begins to descend south towards Thyatira, underneath Thyatira, Sardis, then to Philadelphia, and finally to Laodicea, which you already know from the Book of Colossians. In fact, under Laodicea on the map, you can see Colossi, and above Laodicea, you can see Hierapolis, The Three letter, three Churches of the Lycus River Valley, which we discussed in our last series. Now, <clears throat> this uh, irregular circle, as we could call it, is a geographical circuit. <clears throat> Ramsey himself, in his book, suggested that it may have been a postal route, a Roman-era postal route. <clears throat> and that's the reason for the relationship between these seven churches in the book of Revelation, perhaps a courier route or an itinerary of couriers as they circulated through these uh, locations, through these cities of the ancient uh, Roman Empire. Uh, be that as it may, and incidentally that is not widely accepted, namely that it, it's a postal or courier route, <clears throat> this is a geographical uh, paradigm. It begins in Ephesus and ultimately comes down to Laodicea at the end, what would mean suggesting returning to sure. Ephesus. But there is there is a kind of method to the outline that you have here in verse 11. And what is outlined in verse 11 is the very same order in which they appear in chapters 2 and 3. So we're looking at the map and seeing the order of the text well, as we observe the map, let's note a few other things uh, which we have talked about previously. These are seven churches in Asia Minor, but they're not the only seven churches in Asia Minor. You can count two more around Laodicea, Hierapolis and Colossae, which would bring the total that we know in Asia Minor to nine congregations. And then you can look over to the right uh, above Phrygia, and you can see the beginning of the word Galatia, and then below Phrygia, and also on the right, uh, also the word Galatia. This reflects Ramsay's own, William Ramsay's own suggestion that there were two Galatias, a north and south Galatia. Now that's a highly debated <coughs> theory, but nonetheless, you can see that on the map. And regardless of whether it's north and south Galatia, there was a Galatian region. And a Galatian church, so that would bring the total number to 10 (coughs) that we can identify from this map. And then one final note, over by the upper left hand side, you'll see the province of of Mysia, I'm sorry, Mysia, (coughs) and below the M in Mysia, the word Troas, or the city of Troas, (coughs) which was the point of uh, (coughs) Paul's receiving the Macedonian call and also returning there at the end of his second missionary journey and spending some time there would suggest there may have been a Christian community in Troas. So we had 10 to 11 Christian churches which we can identify in Asia Minor in this first century. All right, but before we leave the map, let's take a look at places where there were churches in addition to this but later on in patristic history that is the history of the early church and if you look to the right of of Mysia to the province of Bithynia Provincia Bithynia you'll notice just above the V in Provincia the city of Nicaea now you should resonate with recognition from the city of Nicaea why? Because of the Nicene Creed. Why is the Nicene Creed important? Not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit for Nicene number one. <laughs> and it's actually not Nicaea number two either. Go ahead, Robert. The deity of Christ. The deity of Christ, correct. And what, was the, what was the issue? Who were they arguing against? Not Armenians. Marge. Was it yes, the Arians. You could confuse that with Armenians, but no, the Armenians aren't Arians. <laughs> They've got problems elsewhere, but not with respect to the uh, Trinity in general. At least not uh, Arminius himself. All right. So uh, that's where the Nicene Council met in the year 325. So there is a very large Christian community in Nicaea in Asia Minor in the 4th century AD and as you look north of Nicaea and just opposite Constantinople you see another uh, location Chalcedon and Constantinople across the straits there Bosporus Straits there uh, which was the location of another council which Bob mentioned namely the Holy Spirit it was in 381 that the Council of Constantinople defined the deity of the Holy Spirit. Having defined the deity of the Son of God, second person of the Trinity in 325, then, of course, they had to go on to make sure that the Church agreed on the deity of the Holy Ghost, and based upon Scripture, they declared that in 381 so that you have the so-called Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, which you'll find in the Trinity hymnal, it's labeled that way, because of the Nicene original 325, and then the enlargement to also make sure the deity of the Holy Spirit was emphasized in the Niceno-Constantinopolitan version of 381. One final comment on the map. Chalcedon, which I pointed out just a moment ago. Chalcedon is another city which is famous for a confessional document. It's called the symbol of Chalcedon. It's dated four fifty one. And it's the council in which the two natures of Christ was was uh, defined and uh, concluded that Jesus of Nazareth has a divine and a human nature united in confusedly and and uh, and without dist- without confusion and without commingling in one person. So the person of Jesus of Nazareth is the person of the God-Man the hypostatic union, the union between the divine and the human nature. The, Ch- the symbol of Chalcedon is a very interesting document. It's a very short statement, but quite compact, and that's where it uh, originated from in the 5th century. All right, now, uh, that ranges you over the map in some ways, uh, perhaps unexpectedly, <clears throat> but nonetheless reminds us that this region is crucial to the formation of early Christianity. The Nicene Council is crucial to the defense of the deity of your Savior, who dies for you on Good Friday because he is able to do that. If he isn't isn't able to do that as son of God, then he can only die for himself and he can't benefit anyone else than himself, if if he can even do that. So the Nicene Council and Creed is crucial to your Christian profession, even as a Calvinist, even as Reformed people, this uh, council is, is essential to the definition of what Christianity is. It's the same with the symbol of Chalcedon, and including the symbol of Constantinople in 381, where the Holy Spirit's deity is also crucial to your identity as a Christian, the, de- the deity of the three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and <clears throat> the two natures of Christ, that he is more than a mere man. He is a divine man. He is a theanthropic man. He is a God-man. God, divine nature, human nature, united in his person. All right, now, why talk about the map at all? Well, not only because of the seven churches, but also because of John's statement in verse 9 that he was on the island of Patmos. The where is the island of Patmos. And what was John doing there? Now, on your map, you can see it. If you start at Ephesus, if you remember where Ephesus was on the map, and you go down to the left, you'll see a dark letter S for the Aegean Sea, which is the sea on the coast of Asia Minor, (coughs) still is. And underneath the S, Patmos, and (coughs) a little squiggly island there. You're all able to pick it out. All right, now, Patmos is about 35 miles off the coast of Asia Minor in the Aegean Sea, as you can see from the map. It is an island which is <clears throat> somewhat desolate because it's made mostly of volcanic rock. They even have mountains on this island. Well, that's what the natives call it. They're actually high hills. The highest of these mountains is 800 feet tall, which, of course, is no mountain by our standards. That's just a big hill. But, the Well, yeah, that, that, there's some truth to that. <laughs> the island is, as I said, somewhat desolate. There are very few trees there, although there is a, a community that lives on the island even today. Now, you'll notice that Patmos is part of of a group of many islands in that Aegean region. You can see them, they're not all labeled, Patmos itself is, because, of course, Ramsey wanted to point out the location of that particular island for the sake of understanding the text better. But the Romans used Aegean Islands here that you can see spotted along the coast for banished or exiled criminals or troublemakers. Now, <clears throat> Patmos is not listed with these island penal colonies in Roman sources. That is, there's no Roman document that says that Patmos was an island for banishing criminals and troublemakers. But the Christian tradition does indicate that Patmos was used for that purpose. The early church fathers, such as Eusebius, most famous historian of the early church, Eusebius tells us that John was banished to Patmos by the emperor Domitian. And you have his name and his dates on your handout banished at about the year 95 A.D. Now, Domitian is notorious as a Roman emperor for labeling himself Dominus et Deus, and those Latin terms are there opposite his name on your handout. Dominus meaning Lord, Deus meaning God, et meaning and, very good, okay, Lord and God. Now, of course, that was a blasphemous statement, particularly for someone like the Apostle John, and he may have refused to acknowledge it, and hence the exile to Patmos. We don't know exactly what the charge was. We don't know exactly why he was on the island, obviously banished according to Eusebius, We don't know whether he was charged as a criminal, although there are some traditions that suggest that he was charged as a criminal. But nonetheless, it makes sense to think that he may have fallen into the crosshairs of the authorities with respect to this phrase Dominus et Deus and refused to acknowledge it or to confess it. Now, when Domitian was assassinated in 96 A.D., His successor, Nerva, and his name is there also on your outline, is alleged to have ordered the repatriation of those exiled and banished by his predecessor, Domitian, including John. The early Christian sources suggest that when Nerva came to the throne, he released or declared a kind of amnesty, and these prisoners or those who had been banished were allowed to return to their native cities or native lands. John, according to those Christian sources, returned to Ephesus from which he had been banished. Perhaps he was a leader of the church in Ephesus. Perhaps he was the leader of the church in Ephesus coming uh, along after uh, Paul and Timothy. But in any event, Uh, those sources, particularly that of Irenaeus of Lyon, in his famous book Against Heresies, says that sometime uh, during the reign of Nerva, John returned to Ephesus where he died later on during the reign of the Emperor Trajan, whose name is also on your handout. Now, the Christian tradition is not recorded in any particular inscriptions. There's no hard evidence. It's just the tradition that's been handed down in these sources. But our text, verse 9, lends some plausibility to the scenario that the tradition is repeating. Notice that word in verse 9, because. Because More idiomatically, it could be translated, on account of, on account of the word of God and the testimony or witness of or to Jesus. John is specifying the causes on account of which he was on the island of Patmos. And he specifies that there are two reasons which precipitated his deportation. God's word and Jesus' testimony. Neither of those, neither of those would have permitted John to acknowledge Domitian as Lord and God. For the word of God rejects the notion of a creature being the creator. That was blasphemous on Domitian's uh, terms. And Jesus testifies that he is alone, the son of the father and God incarnate He is very God of very God, as the later Christian church would articulate. So, what John says in this verse gives plausibility to what the tradition of the Christian fathers reports. Domitian's claim to divine status and divine worship would have been met, that is the Dominus Adeus claim, would have been met by the same refusal that John tendered when he was forbidden to preach in the name of Jesus by the Jerusalem scribes and priests recorded in Acts chapter 4. In other words, he had been through this before, and so in his old age, in his senior years, he wasn't about to <clears throat> turn back on what he had taken, a position he had taken previously. Now, there's another uh, <clears throat> Factor, there's another source that enters into this discussion. And that is the letter of Pliny the Younger to the Emperor Trajan in about 112 AD. And his name is there on your handout, a series of letters exchanged between Pliny and Trajan. Pliny was a governor, a Roman governor in the province of Bithynia, which you see on your map. And he wrote some letters about Christians in his region, to the emperor. And in that letter, Pliny indicates that some Christians did renounce the gospel of Christ during a previous persecution. Now, this letter is being written in 112 A.D., and he says in a previous persecution 20 years ago, which would take us back to 92 A.D. and the reign of the emperor Domitian, In in that time, there was a persecution in which Christians were brought before the authorities and asked to renounce Jesus, and many of them did. That would put Pliny the Younger's reference into the reign of Domitian, in which we realize that Domitian is labeling himself Dominus et Deus, and persecution results, particularly in Asia Minor perhaps even in Ephesus itself. The persecution then under Domitian, and we note here in verse 9, John's word, tribulation, the persecution under Domitian appears to have been regional and local, not empire-wide and universal. Now, we do know one person who was claimed as a martyr by this Domitianic persecution. And if you turn ahead in your uh, Bible to chapter 2, verse 13, you will read that in the letter to the church at Pergamon, Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's stone is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now the death of Antipas undoubtedly occurred during the Domitianic persecution in Asia Minor sometime between 90 and 96 A.D. Once again, John may have been caught up in this Domitianic oppression and sent to hard labor in the mines and rock quarries of Potmos. Now, we've indicated that he was banished. We've indicated that he was banished for refusal to cooperate with what the emperor was demanding or what the authorities on behalf of the emperor were demanding. We <clears throat> we note from the sources that he was exiled, but there are also sources that suggest that he was sentenced to hard labor in the mines and rock quarries which were... Which were used on the island of Patmos to mine stone and gravel. Those traditions can't be proven one way or the other, but they are an interesting full uh, filling out of what John means by being on the island of Patmos in this ninth verse. There is no question that he was there. Why he was there, there are possibilities which all orient themselves around Domitian's persecution or the persecution under Domitian that occurred in Asia Minor in his day. Any questions about John on Patmos? All right, well, let's pause for a moment and remind ourselves of the dangers of the omnipotent ruler as we are reminded of the dangers of the omnipotent state. These godlike claims are totalitarian and tyrannical. They arrogate to the creature prerogatives which belong to the triune God, and they humiliate, isolate, incarcerate, even execute dissenters. When a culture advances to the state itself or the ruler of the state himself, presuming upon the due rights and God-given liberties of men and women made in his image, then tyranny and oppression are waiting in the wings as it did in the days of the Roman emperors, Domitian included. The desire to exercise Ultimate power over free and independent human beings is a totalitarian and dictatorial urge which has been a part of political history since the fall of mankind. We only need to recount socialist and communist tyrannies of our own late 20th century in our so-called enlightened age of human existence. How many millions of souls dispatched by brutal murder in the 20th century under socialist and communist regimes. More than a 100 million by estimates. If it is not restrained by respect for liberty and individual rights, it will become as deadly as it did in Domitian's reign and all other like-minded despotic and authoritarian regimes. But in the event, this remains certain. The word of God and the testimony of Jesus will endure as they did in the case of John and will do so until our Lord Jesus returns in glory. Tyranny cannot crush our, confessant, our confessed deity and his divine son, our king. The liberty of the children of God cannot be trumped by the tyranny of the children of Satan. Indeed, we are more than conquerors, even when they kill our bodies, where they cannot destroy our Christ-centered, possessed by Christ souls. That they cannot touch. It is inviolable because it belongs to Jesus. Now, it is clear, from this ninth verse, that there was a persecution or tribulation of Christians in Asia Minor during John's later years in the reign of Domitian, emperor of Rome. John testified to being a partaker. Notice his word, a partaker in it. The Roman persecution of Christians did not begin with Domitian. It began with the Emperor Nero in 64 AD, following the great fire which destroyed much of the city on the seven hills and became a precedent for imperial hostility to Christianity, but was confined locally to Rome and not practiced empire-wide. The famous stories of Nero crucifying the Christians that he was able to round up in Rome and tacking them up on crosses, painting them with pitch and tar, and setting them on fire to light the roads into Rome. Nice fellow, this Nero. That persecution was probably restricted to the city of Rome and its environs, but the New Testament records persecutions and tribulations of Christians elsewhere, So other local persecutions were occurring, whether before Nero or after Nero. We know that Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome in 49 AD. Was that also part of an attempt to persecute Christians more broadly as well as Jews? We can't say for sure, but we do know that there are other notes in the record of the gospel, in the record of the scriptures, the New Testament epistles, which record Persecution of Christians. In Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 1.6. In Derbe, Lystra, and Iconium, Acts 14.22, where Paul was stoned and left for dead. In the community to which the epistle to the Hebrews was addressed, Hebrews 10.32-33, the persecution which followed the martyrdom of Stephen, scattering the Christians from Jerusalem to Antioch and Cyprus. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. That's very early. That's very close to the time of the resurrection of Christ himself, back in the 30s AD. The trials and sufferings of Christians in Asia Minor generally, which are recorded by the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 1, 6, and 7, and he specifies... Those provinces of Asia Minor, which we've already noted, and so there was a persecution even before the Domitianic persecution in certain regions of Asia Minor. Thus, we know that Christianity from its inception was frequently met with hostility and persecution. These may have been regional and local, but they were nonetheless real and actual. Now, I underscore this point not only to build upon what is in the text about the tribulation. John experiences a tribulation which he is partaking in with other Christians. he's a partaker, it's going on and others are suffering from it. I do this because there is a, a scholarly argument that early Christianity wasn't persecuted until later in the history of the Roman Empire. No, Christianity was persecuted virtually from the very beginning. Hatred of Christians reflected hatred of Christ. For Jesus told his disciples that what was displayed toward him would be mirrored in them. This is what he said. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. John 15, 18. Those are strong words. They are words that we have not had to suffer much consequence from. But those days may be numbered. They hate our Savior. They will hate us who love him. If you love him, you can expect to be hated by the non-Christian world. A hatred which will move beyond tolerance to to a, a vicious intolerance. And it is beginning to creep out into Western civilization more and more. John, the disciple and apostle of Jesus, is folded into the mirror relationship of his Lord and Savior. He is saying, and I'm paraphrasing him, I am a fellow partaker in tribulation together with Jesus, my Lord. For my Lord Jesus said, in the world you shall have tribulation. It is the same word as what is used here in this verse 9 of Revelation 1. Notice the present tense of that verb. In the world you have tribulation, present tense, continuous present tense. But take courage, I have overcome the world, John 16:33. Now I am not claiming any prophetic powers. But you don't need to be a prophet to read the news reports and what is happening in many Western countries with respect to the position of Christians before the governments of those countries. Have we turned a corner? Is the day coming when what John experienced and what early Christians in many places experienced will come to us? I do not know, but I do know this, The gates of hell will not prevail against us. Jesus has promised us that. And as Tertullian said years ago, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. For where it, wherein Christian blood is shed, Christian testimony lives and witnesses, testifies to the fact that these Christians die too well, as the Romans said. We die well because we die in the arms of our savior. Now, I want to take some time to dig into this word fellow in that verse, but before we do that, let's take our break, let's get a breath of fresh air, stretch our legs, and we'll come back and dig in a little deeper. Now, you see the word fellow before partaker there in that ninth verse, and it's a Greek word which has uh, soon or sin as we would pronounce it, uh, <coughs> as a prefix to the root, and we see it in the English word synonym, and it means together with or to bring together, for a book of synonyms brings together similar words. So John is a partaker together with others in tribulation, as we've pointed out, but I'm going to suggest that that uh, that fellow word actually goes back to brother. He is a brother together with those to whom he is writing, even as he is a partaker together with, to, with those with whom he is writing, partaker in tribulation and a brother with them in tribulation. Now, why do I make a point of this? Since the actual Greek prefix goes with the word, uh, uh partaker and not with brother. Well, I'm making a point of it because I want you to observe how he's drawing his readers into his own narrative. If he's been exiled because of tribulation, and they are also suffering tribulation, then he is drawing them into his own narrative as his brothers and sisters in the saving grace of Christ. So he's a participant in the saving grace of Christ and they're subjects to tribulation, so he is together with them in that tribulation. Now, underneath this pattern, then, is this interadventual paradigm that I've been emphasizing. He has mirrored the apostle's story as a reflection of his fellow believer's story and derives that from Jesus' story. In other words, in this period between the advents, the tribulation which Jesus himself experienced, is now being experienced by his followers. And that tribulation will continue to be experienced down through the ages of the church as long as Jesus remains at the right hand of glory and does not return in power and judgment. <clears throat> this pattern, then, doesn't require any special future period of tribulation it is an ongoing aspect of the Christian church. We may not be experience it, experience it unto blood as the scriptures say right in our country and in our day, but it is certainly being experienced in certain regions of this world even unto blood by Christians in our time, and it has always been the case. So in every era of this interadventual era age Christians are undergoing or partaking in tribulation. Now, this tribulation is also in Jesus. Now, John uses this phrase here almost uniquely. There is one other place where it occurs. But this phrase in Jesus is the equivalent of Paul's phrase in Christ, en Christo. So, And Yesu here is the union motif that Paul underscores when he talks about being in Christ. It is that phrase which accentuates and underscores the spiritual union which a believer has with his Savior. So John is here making the same essential point of the Union Christi, the union with Christ, which is a motif of the entire New Testament, a motif. It's a covenant motif of the whole Bible, being united unto the saving God, the saving Savior, etc. <clears throat> this union motif, then, is prominent in John's experience of that tribulation. What sustains him in the face of this tribulation that he's experiencing along with his other brothers in, with, who, who are partaking with, in it with him? It is that union with Christ. It is as identification and spiritual relationship with the Lord Jesus which encourages him, strengthens him, and allows him to persevere, as he says also in that phrase. Now we're reminded that the premillennial interpretation of the kingdom of God, and you'll notice the word kingdom which is mentioned here also in this line, premillennial interpretation of the kingdom of God reprises the Jewish eschatology of a future messianic age of blessedness, especially for Judaism. Keep in mind that in the first century, at the time of Christ's preaching, the Jewish faith was expecting a messianic intervention, a messianic intervention which would make Jewish culture and Jewish religion triumphalist. It would triumph over other cultures in the world. This is a horizontal kind of eschatology, in ve- <clears throat> interpreting the Old Testament in terms of a flat line of historical triumphalism for the sake of uh, Judaism. This earthly Jewish triumphalism has been adopted by premillennial Christians, with Christ's kingdom a horizontal, earthly, and temporal Affair or a horizontal carnal that is of the flesh and earthly affair. This horizontal element is a de- it is a defeat of what Christ Himself presented when He t- said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's a defeat and rejection of that, which of course is what they did. They rejected Christ's preaching of the kingdom in that term because He didn't satisfy their criteria of this earthly. A triumphalist ruler or a political figure who was going to deliver them from Roman oppression. Jesus demonstrated a kingdom of God which was vertical, spiritual, and heavenly. That's what the miracles were showing. That's what the parables were teaching. That's what his preaching was describing. He was describing not a flat, horizontal Jewish triumphalism. He was preaching a vertical connection with God's heavenly eschatological rule and reign. That difference is the difference between a Christian view of the kingdom of God and a Jewish view of the kingdom of God. And so premillennial Christians who are actually looking for a future triumphalism of a Jewish kingdom are defeating or rejecting, in effect, the spiritual kingdom that Jesus brought into history 2,000 years ago and continues to work through the spirit in history today. Now, Denison, you're a defeatist. You're saying that uh, there is no triumphalism in Christianity. Yes, there is. There's an everlasting triumphalism. It is the triumphalism of Jesus' message that the kingdom of God is the bringing of everlasting life to those that believe in him. It is a kingdom which is not of this world and therefore must be a vertical and transcendent kingdom of some kind. It is dominated by the Holy Spirit because it is a spiritual kingdom in which the Spirit moves and works and, 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 and regenerates. And it is a kingdom which will never be superseded because what could you have better than the kingdom of heaven itself? A kingdom in Jerusalem? a kingdom with a new temple on the on Mount Zion on the dome, at the location of the dome of the rock is that better than what already is a, is available at the right hand of the glory on of the power of glory on high now i'm being a little hard on our premillennial brothers and sisters but nonetheless the essence here is that this tribulation is present in John's own experience. It's not delayed to a 70-year period of tribulation or turbulence. It's something that goes along with the Christian gospel of the kingdom of God as Jesus brought it now and not yet. Yes, Randy. Is it safe to say or is this not correct that if it's the spiritual kingdom is anti-historical or anti-chronological, therefore. Well, you want to be careful there. It's, it's not anti-historical. It, it, it is present in history, but it is not present in history as a political entity or as a earthly entity. It is present in history as a spiritual reality. It is a participation in that which is transcendent. You participate in the heavenly places. You're seated there, as Paul says in the Epistle of the Ephesians. So it does affect time and history. It comes down and intervenes. Yes. Periodic. Yes. It is a vertical intrusion into time and space. That's what the Holy Spirit does when he saves any human soul. He's making a vertical intrusion into time and space. But it is not a horizontal triumphalism. Yes, so Jim, On what you said, why, why would Christians, in particular premillennialist Christians, why would they, so to speak, take up the cause of the Jewish people and put their stock in a millennium where you have temple and <coughs> sacrifice and so on? Why would they put their stock in that? Why wouldn't they do something for themselves? Very good question. Because, of course, they are literalists with respect to the interpretation of Old Testament prophecy and literalists with respect to some of the words of Jesus and literalists with respect to the interpretation of these visions in the book of Revelation. So because they think they are they are literally and not figuratively or symbolically real, they they say it must be literally fulfilled. So their commitment to their own hermeneutic is commendable. It's just that the hermeneutic is wrong-headed, in my opinion, and it it does not correctly understand and articulate the kingdom of God that Jesus brought and is bringing and will bring in consummate perfection and glory. As I said, the contrast is the contrast between a triumphalist Jerusalem or a triumphalist Jerusalem above. Paul in Galatians 4 says, Jerusalem above. The writer of Hebrews says, we can call to a heavenly Jerusalem. That's the Jerusalem that we belong to, not what's on that map over there in Israel. I'm not diminishing the state of Israel in any way. I'm just simply saying that doesn't have any part in Old Testament prophecy. But that's the reason they, they, they latch on to it. They latch on to it because you must interpret the prophets literally. Okay. Now this kingdom that John is describing is dominated by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And its spiritual character is the arena into which John was drawn or caught up on the Lord's day. Verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. In the Spirit, he becomes a witness to the world to come. In the Spirit on the Lord's day, he becomes a witness to a world of heavenly, apocalyptic visions, symbols, and tapestries. He participates in this spiritual reverie. He Participates in it on the Lord's Day, which we note has become a technical and formal designation of the first day of the week, the day of the resurrection of Jesus by the end of the first century. If The book of Revelation is the latest book, in the New Testament chronologically, that is, by in terms of time. If it is somewhere around 90 AD, as some think, then this designation of the Lord's Day indicates that the day in which Christ arose, labeled the Lord's Day, has become a terminus technicus, become a ter- technical term for the day of Christian worship, what we could also call the Christian Sabbath because it complies with the language of the fourth commandment of the Old Testament law of Moses. The Lord's day as a technical word for the day of resurrection, the day of worship, the Christian Sabbath set apart for honoring the Lord who has risen in glory on that day. All right. Now, in that 10th verse, notice what John hears. He hears a voice, a loud voice, like the sound of a trumpet. Now, this is interesting because of the significance of the trumpet of the Lord or the angelic trumpet in the the corpus of Scripture, Old and New Testament alike. A trumpet sounds the clarion of God, a clarion note announcing a momentous event, at Mount Sinai, the trumpet sounds the giving forth of the law of God from the from the Holy Mount. In prophetic literature, the trumpet sounds the dreadful day of the Lord. Joel two one would be an example of that. Now Jesus Himself revealed that at His return, the second coming, there will be an announcement of the sound of a trumpet in Matthew 24:31 as he comes on the clouds of glory. And coincidentally, that is at the same time as that trumpet announces the coming of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15:52 declares that the trumpet blast will be the clarion for the resurrection of the dead who will be raised incorruptible. Notice that this sound of the trumpet is momentous. It is a declaration of something so significant that it is, it is as if something unknown before has now been revealed. My suggestion that here, this voice, which sounds like a trumpet in the ear of John, is to admit John to the second coming of the Lord in the Spirit. That is... Even as he is in the Spirit in his own time, as he's receiving this revelation, so he is transported by the Spirit into that second coming revelation, which is about to be revealed to him in symbols, signs, and tapestries of glory. In other words, John is being drawn into the whole paradigm. Not only that which occurs in his own historical circumstances, but that which is transcendent and even forward-looking. Now, that may be slightly speculatively, speculative for me to make that statement, but him being caught up in the spirit is, in effect, him being caught up into that spiritual drama and that spiritual reality. That spiritual realm. It's like Paul being caught up to the third heaven and he can't even talk about it. Because his language can't communicate it. John's language is going to communicate what he sees. Notice the next verse. Record what you see. He's going to record what he sees, but he's not going to be able to record it in any other terms than symbols and signs and, and pictures. Everything is going to be like this, similar to this, but more than this. So we come back to what Paul says: "I hath not seen what God has prepared for those that love Him." The issue here, of course. Is the grandeur of glory and of course the grandeur of the one who consummates that glory, namely the Lord Jesus in his triumph and concluding, uh, return of, of wrapping up the whole history of the ages. Randy, you had your hand up or you were ready to ask something? Oh, no. Okay. All right. So, yes, go ahead, Art. That I'm wrong. But I conclude he right write what you see in a book. That's pretty easy to do. See it, and write it. But you're suggesting that it has a lot more meaning, even than what he's seeing and writing. Yes. Okay. Thank that's you. what I am suggesting. suggesting. Thank you. Yes, that's Paul, in that third heaven experience, could not communicate it. It was beyond human language to express. So we're being driven by these images. Into something which is even transcends the images themselves. But that's as close, to use Calvin's word, that's as close as God can accommodate what it is to our own understanding. In other words, it's better than you can imagine. It's richer than you can dream. All of these uh, chapters are going to give you images and portraits of it, but it's richer than even those portraits. And we'll begin to explore that in the next section of this chapter, verses 12 to 16, when we explore the vision of who appears to John in this glory. I trust that that will encourage your hearts, even as it did the Apostle John's. Remember, it's in tribulation that he's taken in the spirit into this arena. You know that that arena is real. You know that the Spirit has caused you to embrace that kingdom and that glory. So let your hearts soar and let your minds be at peace and do not be afraid of whatever the kingdoms of this world will bring to you. You are secure in the kingdom which cannot be destroyed. And the Savior, who will not allow you to be cast away or destroyed. Let's pray. Father, we do bless you for your word, but for the reality of yourself and your blessed Son and the glorious Spirit and that heavenly arena in which you live and dwell with the saints and the souls of just men and women made perfect. We thank you, O Lord, for the testimony of John. We thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the reality of yourself and the glory which is yet to be revealed. Bring us into that wonderful experience. Quiet our hearts, encourage our souls, particularly in this season of remembering the crucifixion of our Savior and his wonderful and victorious resurrection. Bless us. Bless us with the realization that heaven has come down to us in the Son of God coming from heaven to us so that we might come to heaven as sons and daughters of the living God. In Jesus' name we pray and thank you. Amen.